The Eagle and Child, Episode 19. Mere Christianity, Book 3, Chapter 6. Christian Marriage, Part 2. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week, my friend Matt and I share a beer, and we discuss the writings of the author who is known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. Now, normally we just do one chapter per episode, but in the previous episode, Matt and I got a little carried away, and we ended up with far more material than we normally do. So, rather than just cutting it all, we decided to split it over two episodes. So here is the concluding part to Book 3, Chapter 6, on Christian marriage. In Once Again, in this chapter, Lewis is about to enter dangerous waters. He asks whether or not the Christian view of marriage should be enshrined in law, in particular in reference to divorce, and thereby imposed on the rest of society. And here's what he says. A great many people seem to think that if you are a Christian yourself, you should try to make divorce difficult for everyone. I do not think that. At least I know I should be very angry if the Mohammedans, i.e. the Muslims, tried to prevent the rest of us from drinking wine. What do you think of this, David? I can see his point. Um, I think I'm going to push back a little bit. I can, I can see his logic. And before we get to you pushing back on this... Let's complete what Lewis believes it should be. He thinks there should be a clear distinction between a civil union or a marriage in the eyes of the state versus a marriage of the church, a Christian marriage. And he says the distinction ought to be quite sharp so that a man knows which couples are married in a Christian sense and which are not. All right, now you're now <laughs> you push back on this. Well, the, actually, before we get to that, this, the rather funny thing is that Later in life, Lewis would actually do just this. Joy Davidman, he gave her a paper marriage because she was an American and he married her so she could stay in the country together with her sons. And it was only later that he then married her in the eyes of God and they actually became, in his eyes, truly man and wife. Now, his argument, part of me finds it very compelling because by disassociating the sacrament of matrimony from the state's concept of marriage, it would seem to be protecting one from the other. Because the problem is, is, as soon as you lump these two things together, a changing meaning of one, if the state starts to conceive of marriage differently, then that could bleed into the church's understanding. And we're seeing that today. Absolutely. The recent legislation that's gone through the United States courts here, defining on what actually makes a marriage, is having impact on churches. And I can only see that increasing in the future. So given what's happened recently in the United States and elsewhere concerning the redefinition of marriage, Lewis's fears seem to be well-founded and his solution rather neat. Here's the bit that I'd push back on, though, and I'd actually argue using two principles which Lewis has actually already used throughout this book. The first being the moral law, and the second, this concept of the ideal running of the human machine. If the Christian conception of marriage is in accord with the moral law and it lays out the path for the right running of the human machine, wouldn't you want that enshrined in law to both support the moral law and to ensure that society functions well? Based on the way you're framing it, yes, you would. 
but I feel maybe the proper way to address it would be to work on changing the people's hearts because you can put it in law. I'm thinking of his three moralities. Mm-hmm. The ships can be, we can put the laws in place to make sure the ships don't hit each other. But if the rudders are broken, it's not going to matter one way or the other. And so maybe the answer is a combo of both. Let's, let's the laws, but let's also focus on that inner character of people, getting them to actually buy into it. I completely agree. It's not an either or sort of situation. However, I would then ask the question of, well, where do we get the civil idea of marriage from? Because surely that should come from the natural law. And if the natural law is in accord with the Christian conception of marriage, they are kind of one and the same. I suppose my question is, if you're going to separate the two, by what do you derive your understanding of marriage in the civil sense? I win. (laughs) (laughs) Long pause. And what do you decide? I mean, as a Christian, I would agree with you. That's where we derive it from. If I'm trying to put on an atheistic hat, I would say it should be derived from what is best for society. But then that begs the question, well, what is best for society? So, for example, we live in a no-fault divorce state. Is that actually good for society? Is the swift breakup of marriages a good thing for society or a bad thing? I would argue it's a bad thing. Which that actually is where I was going to go with this. As a Christian, I've always believed that every teaching from God is the most optimal teaching. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that's not the most romantic way of putting it. It's the human machine idea. It, exactly. And so you don't, you shouldn't need to invoke Christianity for why this would be a good law. We should be able to reason our way to this. Mm-hmm. Exactly what you just brought up. But then the question is, well, if we can reason our way to it, should it then become law? Uh, yes. Problem is, it's going to probably take a while to reason people to it because, as we've already alluded to in this, feelings tend to dictate a lot of what we do. And I don't feel like I want that <laughs> imposed on me. Because mm-hmm. who likes extra restrictions? Exactly. We, we, we tend to think that if it's constraining our desires, it's not natural. Mm. Amazing how much that dictates so much of what we do. So we'll move now from one difficult subject to the final difficult subject. If we keep this podcast up and, and being the, the messengers of these difficult topics, we're going to be staying eligible bachelors for a long time. <laughs> I mean, we are delivering some very unpopular ideas and lessons. I'd actually push back on that because who wouldn't want a husband that would be willing to die for his wife? Because that's what I believe about marriage. Ladies, I will personally ensure that his phone number is in the show notes for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say the same thing for you, but you're much younger than I am, so I don't need the competition. <laughs> you have the British accent. I, again, this evens out. Okay, the final topic that Jack addresses is headship within marriage. Here's what he says. Christian wives promise to obey their husbands. In Christian marriage, the man is said to be the head. You've, you've got to like this teaching, right? Because I'm the brain? Exactly. <laughs> this fits perfectly. Well, this is a huge topic, and we're not going to do it justice here. And I actually don't think even Jack gives it the length of treatment that it really deserves. So we're just going to now skim through his main points. And I'm going to let you do this, the majority of this, so you can be the unpopular one on the podcast. All right. I, I, I can take that. So there are a couple of obvious objections to this. Does then really need to be a head? 
And if there is a head in marriage, why not the woman? I actually like that he starts this way. He essentially asking, well, let's think about the alternative. Mm -hmm. It's a fair way to approach it, a different way that I actually have never heard before. So the first question is, do we need a head at all? Can't we just have equality? And I'm just going to read his words here because he lays out the argument very clearly. It is a good one. He says, as long as the husband and wife are agreed, no question of a head need arise. And we can hope this to be the normal state of affairs within a Christian marriage. But when there is a real disagreement, what will happen? Talk it over, of course, but I'm assuming you've done that and still failed to reach an agreement. What do they do next? He says that they can't decide by voting because it's one on either side. Therefore, you've only got two options. Either they separate and go their separate ways, or else one of them has to have the casting vote. And since we've already established that marriage is permanent, one or the other must have, in the last resort, the casting vote. Another way to think about this is from a business partnership perspective. A 50-50 business partnership, well, maybe on the surface sounds like a good idea. At some point, there's going to be a decision that needs to be made that's not going to be made, and it's just not going to work long term. Anyone who's been in business knows that that's just not going to happen. You need, ultimately, a decision maker. One of my first girlfriends, she was an infinitely better Christian than I was. And I remember this subject came up because we dated for quite some time. And she had a very traditional views on this subject. She said that if we did come into this kind of a situation where, you know, we've talked about it, we've prayed about it, and we still can't agree. She said, I hope that I would be able to let my husband make that final casting vote. Because if he truly loved me, he would do what he truly thought was best for me. And I remember hearing this for the first time. I was a mixture of awed, terrified, impressed, more terrified. The responsibility there, that if I truly did have the casting vote, that I would want to make damn sure that I did what was in the best interest for my family and no ego got in the way. And this goes back to what we talked about earlier, that being in love can, can make you courageous. In, in hearing you describe this story, honestly, just made me want to be a better person. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, it, you marry someone like that and you want to do the best you can by them. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't just happen overnight. All of, your choi- all of our choices right now as we're single build up to that point, to be able to make the right decision, to be able to let go of our ego, to be able to have that character and that virtue. And live out St. Paul's words in Ephesians where he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I made a pitch for this in the previous episode where we mentioned that passage. Bram Petrie's talk, Wives Have to Do What? (laughs) It's a good title. Listen to it. It's a beautiful vision of marriage. So that was the first question. Do we really even need a head? So we've we've worked out the logic and, well, yeah, you kind of have to. But does it really have to be the guy? You know, why can't women have the casting vote? Jack begins by rather impertinently asking whether there's actually any serious wish for this to be the case. He says, As far as I can see, even a woman who wants to be the head of her own house does not usually admire the same state of things she finds going on next door. I do not think that she is even very flattered if anyone mentions the fact of her own headship. And he goes on to say that wives themselves are actually half ashamed of it and despise the husbands whom they rule. 
And I have two things to say here, actually. One, connecting back to John Eldridge, this very last part of the sentence, despise the husbands whom they rule. He talks about that a lot, actually. The wife that controls her husbands, or the word he uses actually is domesticates. There's a desire to do that, and then you fall out of love with that person because you, you actually liked the passionate man who was taking charge. Lewis then draws this chapter to a close by offering another possible reason for male headship. And he focuses on the fact that women are naturally fiercely protective of their husband and of their family. He sees the man offering a kind of moderating influence on this fierce natural love. And he gives the example of if your dog bit the child next door, who would you prefer to deal with? The father or the mother? Do you really want to deal with Mama Bear? No. No. I don't think so. When I think of being the head of a household, I don't get some sick pleasure out of this idea. I mean, there's a fear with it, like running a business. There's a lot of responsibility. And sometimes it would be nice not to have that responsibility. So I don't, I think the world's framed this in a, mm. the society's framed this in a light that makes it seem like, ooh, you're the commanding, commander in chief of your household. This is a great thing. It's a lot, it's a huge burden. And it's because they see it only in terms of power, not in terms of responsibility. Yes. You know, or self sacrifice. Exactly. You know, one of the titles for the Pope, the head of the Catholic Church, is servant of the servants of God. Yes. He's at the top of the pyramid, but really he's actually also at the bottom. And I recall when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, ascends to the throne, his advisors say, if today you would be a servant to these people, they will be your people and you will be their king. This isn't a power play. This is about who is the one who serves first? Who is the one who sacrifices first? And this is why the Christians respond that by being the head of the household is the same thing as Christ was the head of the church. In Mark's gospel, it says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. So as a head, we're called to serve. So that was chapter six. We've gone a little long, but there was so much in here. And a lot of it was of a very sensitive nature. We ask for your forgiveness for the length of this chapter. And speaking of forgiveness, we're going to be looking at that next week. How fitting. And I actually did not know that when I chose the quote of the day. <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. You were that unprepared. <laughs> I forgive you, you. You would see it that way. I would. As usual, my outline will be in the show notes. Along with David's phone number. Along with my phone number. And I also want to include a link to a talk that I actually went to in Los Angeles. This, Well, at the time of publishing, it'll be a couple of weeks ago. And it was between the philosopher William Lane Craig and Bishop Robert Barron. I want to include a link for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I think it embodies everything that we're trying to do here. Because they had some frank conversations about the differences between Catholic and Protestant, but that wasn't their primary focus. Their primary focus was on bringing Christianity to the world. And actually, that's the second reason I wanted to put a link in here, because the number of times they mentioned Lewis and mere Christianity. As I said, I was there. Matt was back in San Diego watching it online. And whenever C.S. Lewis was mentioned or mere Christianity, we would text each other and get all excited. Or I would text him when he was on camera. Yeah. So actually, if you haven't, if you don't know what David looks like <laughs> and you watch this, you'll get a chance to see him. Look out for the good looking guy in the glasses. <laughs> we, we should put in the show notes 
what time you actually show up on camera. <laughs> if you want to send me the timestamps, we'll do that. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Please like, share, and subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, everywhere else. You can contact us on the website. Tweet us at Pints with Jack. We're also on Instagram, also at Pints with Jack. And we should say, we've had a few people comment us on your website. Yes. Which has been awesome. I mean, we greatly appreciate it. You, David sent them to me through email, and they were some long comments. <laughs> and I enjoyed reading every bit of it. So what we might do in an episode or two is have a mailbag episode, and we'll talk through some of the responses that we've had. Yeah, we'll save that for one of the weeks when we're too lazy to actually prepare for the episode. I like it. Yeah. All right. Until next time, further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers.